electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, financial fade. While the major averages have been rocking the banks, both big and small haven't come along for the ride. Is the sector still being stunned by the SVB hangover, or is it something else? We'll debate. Plus, AWS going all in on AI. Shares of Amazon surging as the cloud and e-commerce giant says they will invest big money in generative AI as it races to keep up with the competition. We'll hear from the man leading this effort that's coming up. And later, Crude's latest reversal of fortune. The options action on that. A major buzzkill for one of Boeing's big-time suppliers. And cold pizza. Why the slice sector is struggling while so many restaurant stocks are red hot. I'm Courtney Reagan in this evening. For Melissa Lee, this is Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site on the desk tonight. We have Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and our special guest trader, Lori Calvacina. She's head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. We're going to start with an attempted rebound on Wall Street, at least after three straight days of losses for the major averages. Big tech and AI stocks helping the Nasdaq rise nearly a percent today. Its first game in a week. The S&P also managing to end in the green with Palo Alto Networks, Amazon, and FedEx leading the way. The Dow is the only index that was down today. Just barely, though. It still marked its fourth day of losses in a row. Let's take a look at the banks lagging the broader market in a big way today. Both the major bank index and the KRE regional ETF down around 3%. Lori, I want to start with you. You've been on the road a lot talking to investors about regional banks. What are they saying? So it's interesting. When I've talked to small cap managers, value PMs, people who know that regional bank space pretty well, I've actually been surprised that they haven't, I wouldn't say they haven't been concerned, but they've been pretty calm. Calm is probably the right word. I have a lot of people saying, look, we know there's opportunity unfolding here. We have to be patient. They've got their lists. In some cases, they already bought certain names. They're not impatient. I've been surprised that the tone, I wouldn't quite call it constructive, but just that it's been as calm as it's been. Um, and I think there's a recognition that, you know, over time you have these big dislocations in certain industries, certain stocks, they usually end up proving to be buying opportunities. Mm-hmm. The question is always timing. And I think a lot of seasoned investors have come to that conclusion that you just have to be patient. That's an interesting take. What do you make of that, Karen? Is it time to look at some of these banks as the damage been done, as the dust mm-hmm. settling? Well, I, all banks are not created equally, right? And we saw after SVB, what was a disaster for some was actually mana from heaven for others. Mm-hmm. So to me, I've always been invested in the big money center banks. JP Morgan is my biggest bank position. I added to that today. Um, you know, they their quarter was fantastic because they are very... Um, they are very sensitive to higher near-term rates, which have only gone higher since the SVB blow-up. So they have a lot more deposits. I think they're going to have a decent quarter. I think the only thing that will be bad is M&A is going to be lower, trading may be lower. But those things are lumpy, and you know we, they don't get a high multiple when they're great. They shouldn't get a high multiple when they're down. So um, I kind of like this setup. Going into earnings, I'd much rather have it be de- have the banks be down than up. As to the regional, I don't. I just feel like it's too hard. We don't know what potential regulations are down the road, and also, you know, we all talk about the office space and commercial real estate being such a potential issue. Much more for the regional banks 
than the other banks, than, than the big money center banks. So that's how I'm positioned. Dan, I think your last night call was short, short regionals, short big banks. Yeah, the regionals just, again, I think you've said it, and, and you've been very clear about who you think the beneficiaries of all of this, um, you know, commotion have been, and it has been large money centers, specifically, obviously, J.P. Morgan. I mean, you just see the, the acquisition that they ended up making and how the stock has reacted. Um, the rest of the banks don't act particularly well. And then if you look at the KRE, I mean, like, if you just think about what's going on here, okay, the fact that we had deposited um, backstopped, you know, back in March, you would have thought that some of the other regionals, some of the stronger regionals, the U.S or something would have acted better they haven't right and so your point about rates is like when you do a lot of the analysis and some of the stuff that i'm reading is like they still have a scenario where their liabilities are higher than their assets right here and so with rates as high as they are that the competing for deposits if they lose deposits we could find ourselves in the not so distant future in a very similar environment as we were in march and then what do the regulators do what are the regulatory costs what are the expenses i mean all of this is going to be born on the valuations of these regional banks so Again, I, I would probably much rather be in some of the large money center banks than some of the regionals, um, but I think there's probably further shoes to drop. You started out the show by saying the NASDAQ, you can't keep a good thing down or whatever. Look how poorly the regionals and the XLF traded today. Look how poorly the energy sectors, there's, there's still stuff that does, does, doesn't trade particularly well. And the stuff that trades well is keeping the entire market up right now. So it sounds like you're taking a bit of the opposite position of what Lori has seen from some of her clients with the regionals. You're thinking short it's, a time it's not rising. a buying opportunity. I, I, like, I think the clients that she's talking to are taking longer term time rises. They're thinking about valuations. They're okay. thinking about the government backstops and all this sort of stuff. So like, you know, I, I get what she's And saying. I'm actually more in Dan's camp than the investors I've been talking to. We've oh. actually been neutral on the financials and the banks. And I like small caps, but I've told people there's plenty of other stuff to buy in small cap besides the banks. Um, I think the struggle is, you know, if you look at earnings, the sentiment indicator, we watch the rate of upward revisions, it's down around financial crisis and pandemic lows. That is typically a hold your nose and buy signal. But I struggle with the lack of catalysts. I hear valuation, valuation, valuation. These are good quality companies, yada, yada, yada. But I struggle to understand what the catalysts are. And I worry, uh, like you guys, I worry about the regulation, especially heading into an election year where I think the Democrats are going to be pounding that table. I was just going to pick up on that regulation note guy with Powell saying, look, maybe we do need to look at some more regulatory actions with these banks that have $100 billion or more in assets. What do you think about that? What, what could more regulations look like and how would that impact these companies? I mean, it's just going to be harder for these. It, regulation is coming, whether they like it or not. And they, a lot of ways they brought it among, upon themselves. I mean, the Silicon Valley Bank thing was all of their own doing, clearly. And there are going to be ramifications for that. Regulations coming. Capital requirements are going to go up as well. And is this really an environment where banks are going to thrive? I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. So you put all those things together. Valuation, yeah, compelling. But look at Bank of America, for example. Delinquencies, and Karen can speak far more intelligent than I. I mean, a year ago, delinquencies were like 0.84%. Now they're north of 1%. Not markedly north, but north. Trending the wrong way is my point. So I think you're going to see more delinquencies. More write-offs probably are coming down the pike. Regulation is coming. Capital requirements more stringent. And can they pass those costs on? Probably not, which means historic valuations are probably not as favorable as one would think in this environment. And the KRE, quickly to Dan's point, it traded up to 44. In the course of a week, it's given back about 10% or so. doesn't trade particularly well. And Bank of America, which is not a small bank, I think it's a quarter of a trillion dollar bank, I mean, that's within a whisper of a multi-year low. So... Although J.P. Morgan wins this, I get it. There are other banks that are not really in a favorable spot.
obviously interest rates have everything to do with how banks trade. What are you looking at when you're looking at the bond market and watching this yield inversion? Bond market is telling a story that we've talked about on the show for a while. I mean, think about the twos, tens, for example. We had a conversation with Steve Leisman last night, not necessarily as important as other spreads. But since we're talking about it, you know, here's an inversion that went from flat to 1.1 percent, back to 40 basis points in twos, tens. And now we're either side of 1 percent. Over a year now, we've been inverted. Historically, that's not a particularly good sign. And one has to ask themselves, how does this resolve itself? It won't be pretty when it does. So to me, it's a tremendous headwind that the market's not taking into consideration. It is. But if, before we get to our guest, Lori, I want to ask you about the VIX. And the VIX is trading at a very low level. We're sort of complacent as a whole in the market, besides what we're seeing perhaps in the bond market and and besides what we're seeing in some of the financial stocks. So I think that's a great point. And the VIX, you know, it was interesting to me when the VIX was above 25. That's typically a great buy signal. But when you get this low, you start worrying about complacency coming in and has the rally gone too far. I have other sentiment indicators that I look at as well, AAII in particular. The net bulls have been at 20 percent, over 20 percent for the last two weeks. Once that starts to hit a four-week average of 30 percent, you can see that reasonably happening within the next month or two, that typically gives you a pretty good sell signal for the broader market. So I don't think the VIX at 13 or this AAII gauge, they're not necessarily telling you have to sell today, but they are starting to tell you that this thing is getting late innings and you need to be a little more careful. Good indicators to watch. Well, our next guest calls higher rates a chronic issue for banks. Paul McCulley is PIMCO's former chief economist. Paul now teaches Fed watching at Georgetown. Paul, it's great to have you here with us. Obviously, we heard from Powell the last couple of days here on, uh, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. He talked about a lot of things, though, I guess not a lot that we learned was new. Let's get your take on where we are right now in Fed policy with this pause. How long should we be in a pause scenario for rates? Well, that's the key question everyone wants to know. I, th- I think that Fed policy is actually in a pretty good place right now, uh, even though the marketplace seems to be wrapped around the axle about the fact there's going to be a couple more hikes in the dot plot. The Fed's restricting. That is hugely important. They've gone from uber easy, I mean, zero and all of that sort of thing, to 500 basis points inside of 15 months. They're in restrictive. The yield curve is very much inverted and inflation is coming down. Uh, So I think the Fed is in a good place, but they don't want to declare victory early. They want to declare victory late. So the price tag of the pause last week was two more hikes in the dot plot. Uh, That's not a policy uh, that's voted upon, but essentially Powell said, you know, that's a pretty good guess. So essentially the marketplace has to uh, grip with the notion that the Fed's not finished. They're almost finished, but not finished. The Fed's not ready to to declare they are sufficiently restricted. Paul, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. I know you, you've been in the camp sort of there. They're much closer to done or should be done. But inflation is still not remotely close. Right. They are two d- integers away from the right first number. So how do you how do you square those two thoughts? Well, the two percent inflation target is a long term target. It is not necessarily a real time target. Uh, They have it out there as a load star, and we've come down dramatically on the headline. 
We haven't done nearly as much on core, in part because the housing market is lagging in the data, and in part because the labor market is still strong, feeding through to uh, uh, services prices. But inflation is very much going the right direction. They will declare sufficiently restrictive with a three handle. They don't need to get all the way to two. Uh, so it's out there as a lodestar, but it is not a binding constraint on the Fed declaring victory later in this year after it has one or two more hikes, possibly. It's, uh, we, we got another employment report, obviously another CPI report uh, before the next FOMC meeting. So essentially, the, the Fed wanted to push the market out in time for finished and a pivot, and I think it's successfully done that. I was kind of just going to ask that question. I mean, in some ways, it feels like we're in the upside down. Everything's like a little wacky, right? Inflation is coming down, but it's still pretty high. Unemployment is still really low, but the yield curve has been inverted for over a year. I mean, has the Fed successfully helped us avoid a recession, or are we not there yet? Are we waiting for it to happen, or have we pivoted away? I think we're primed for a soft landing. I don't think that we have to have a recession. Uh, I really don't. It's usually important that the Fed not over tighten, but I think they're in a good place uh, to get a soft landing. Uh, and the inverted yield curve can be taken as a sign that there's a recession coming, or it can be taken as a sign and an endorsement that the Fed is going to be successful in bringing down inflation. And when it's successful, then you can have the front end of the yield curve come down. But essentially, Chair Powell was saying, yes, that's possible, but don't discount it now. We still have a bit more work to do. We're not to the holy grail. Uh, and I think that's where we are now. But I would not look at the yield curve as a sign that a recession is baked in the cake, but rather a sign that the market believes the Fed will be successful in getting inflation down toward that 2%, not to 2%. Paul, if I had your head of hair, I would never wear a hat. <laughs> but you've worn a few in your career. So put your equity hat on for a second. At 4400 in the S&P, are you surprised by how strong stocks have been and Given what you just said, can this resilience continue? Can we continue to sort of grind higher? I have become a bit more optim uh, agnostic, not optimistic, but agnostic uh, from where we are right now. I've observed, just like everybody else, the leadership issue, the growth stocks, uh, you know, uh, soaring and so forth. And that made fundamental sense from the standpoint that long rates came down even as the Fed was taking up short rates and growth stocks are valued off the long end of the curve. So that made sense. And then you had the AI, uh, which logically should lead to a move in that direction. And everything in that space will be overvalued because we don't know who the winners are. So people just buy everything. So I've understood it. But we've reached the point right now uh, where I'm kind of agnostic on whether or not we can move forward from here, basically because the Fed is putting out in time declaring victory. And I think it's going to be hard for the broad market to get a firm bull trend until we can credibly forecast 
the Fed is finished and that a pivot is on a visible horizon. And I really don't think you can do that right now. Maybe in a few months, maybe after Powell speaks at Jackson Hole. But right now, I'm a little bit edgy about the upside for the market, for the stock market. Got it. Thank you very much, Paul McCulley, for joining us with your take. Lori, where do you think the Fed is right now? Do you think it's in the right place? Do you think we should hold this pause for longer or go back to hike sooner rather than later? You know, I think they should have paused previously. I do think they have a lot of work to do on inflation, but I think they've done a good job of leaving the door open for further hikes. They could have done that before. I honestly feel like what they're doing right now and, you know, just consulting with my rate strategist is really trying to rein in risk assets a bit. Not quite sure I entirely believe the dots. I think Powell had some comments last week suggesting, you know, this is a guess. Um, you know, we shouldn't bank too much on it. But I personally, I, I feel like what they're trying to do is push the expectations for cuts out. And I don't think that that is too detrimental to equity markets. A lot of the investors I've been talking to for a while have been looking for more of a pause as opposed to cuts in the near term, still talking about cuts next year. But that's what I feel like the Fed is. I feel like they're engaged in more of a communication strategy at this point. Well, let's move on to our call of the day. Longtime Tesla bull Adam Jonas and Morgan Stanley downgrading the EV maker stock to equal weight from overweight, but increasing its price target to 250 from 200. That's lower than where it closed the day. Jonas calling Tesla, quote, a must own stock, but saying high expectations for how much AI will boost the company have brought it down to a fair valuation. Dan, we talk about this name all the time. To me, this seems like more of a valuation call than anything else, looking at it more of as an automaker than anything else. Do you agree with what Jonas is saying? Sure. I mean, it's interesting, though, that, you know, he's raising his price target. I mean, listen, all these analysts, they lowered their price target. This stock sold off 75% from its all-time highs, okay? 75%. It was a trillion-dollar market cap, okay? So as wrong as people like me have been of late, um, everybody has been very wrong on this stock either direction in the last year or two. And so I just think it's interesting that, you know, you can take a victory lap, you can say, okay, the stock is up 200% off the lows, and you can take off your buy rating, but you were also lowering your price target and your estimates the whole way down. And what I'm not convinced about right now is that, the fundamentals have actually improved since they reported their Q1 in late April. And some of the data that, that I'm looking at says that that's not the case and that the automotive margins are going to be under pressure. And I know there's a lot of excitement about two things, about the just adoption of their charging model by many of the OEMs here um, in the U.S., but then also this AI stuff, which is not, I think it was in that David Faber interview last month where he said that we might be able to have an AI moment. That seems very Elon Musk to suggest that in the middle of, uh, you know, a frenzy that we have in the stock market. So, you know, to me, uh, again, uh, you know, some of the biggest bulls on the stock were selling in April, too. So, you know, like, have at it, people. <laughs> Guy, what do you make of 250 as a price target? Reasonable. I mean, I see what he's doing here. He's, he's getting in line with where the stock is. A lot of people, I've been dead wrong since, I want to say, 165, 170. But that's the way the stock, that's what it does to people. But it's a margin story at its core, I think understanding all the other things going around. And legacy automakers, I think margins maybe 16% historically. Tesla's probably sub-20 now headed that way. And I think at a certain point, people will question valuation if margins continue to contract. And I understand the bull case. He also, Adam Jonas, I think his bear case is like a $90 yeah. handle for this stock. Bull which, case, 450 bear case, 90 So think about that for a second. And to Dan's point, I mean, when it was stock was 110 you couldn't give it away. And there was a cascade of people saying, you know, Tesla's in a lot of trouble here. So as quickly as people get um, negative on the stock, that's how quickly people get euphoric. And I think we've hit that euphoria level. 
Well, coming up, down arrow shares of Spirit Arrow Systems dropping to its lowest level of the month. What's behind the move and the ripple effects on airplane makers? Plus, a good prognosis for healthcare. Shares of Lilly hitting new all-time highs. So, is this stock just what the doctor ordered? The traders debate when fast money returns. We're back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? Or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got some breaking news on 3M. Let's get over to Seema Modi on the Fast Line. She's got the story. Seema, what's going on here? Hey, Court. 3M announcing a $10.3 billion PFAS settlement with public water suppliers in the U.S. that have sued the company um, on PFAS contamination. The company says it expects to record a pre-tax charge of roughly that amount in the second quarter. And in this release, CEO Mike Roman says, quote, this is an important step forward for 3M. One thing I would point out, this $10.3 billion does not cover the growing list of states that are suing the chemical manufacturer over toxic forever chemicals that are linked to illnesses. So we still need clarity on those specific legal setbacks. But this news of a settlement tied to water utilities does suggest the company is making progress in addressing this PFAS legal setback that has weighed on the stock. You'll see shares of 3M are popping here in after hours. Court. Thank you very much, Seema. Yeah, shares of 3M up by almost 5% in response. Well, a buzzkill now on Spirit Aerosystems. Shares dropping more than 9% for the stock's worst day since the start of May. The company, which supplies parts to Boeing, halting production at its Wichita, Kansas factory following an announcement that employees will strike starting Saturday. Our Phil LeBeau is here with the latest. Hi, Phil. Courtney, you gave the headlines there, which is essentially that Spirit Aerosystems has halted production ahead of the contract with the International Association of Machinists. Their contract expiring at the end of Friday night. A strike is expected on Saturday, and that's why the stock was down more than 9% today. This is critical to Boeing, and I want to take a look at shares of Boeing. It wasn't down more, what, I think 3, 3.5% today. The reason why is people are, people are going to say, well, if Spirit halts 737 MAX fuselage production, as well as production of other fuselages, what kind of an impact does this have on Boeing? At this point, Boeing is not changing its production schedule. It has some inventory when it comes to the 737 MAX, but this comes at a crucial time if there is an extended strike at Spirit Aerosystems. Currently building 31 a month. They're expected relatively soon to go up to 38 a month. The goal is to eventually build it up to 50 a month by 2025. 
And also keep in mind that when you look at not just Boeing and Airbus, and by the way, Airbus also gets uh, parts fuselages from Spirit Aerosystems. When you look at others within the aviation supplier complex, whether it's GE, whether it's Howmet, they've all had a heck of a run over the last year. But if we see an extended strike in Wichita at Spirit Aerosystems, and by extended, I'm talking about more than a couple of days, you know, it would have to be something that goes several weeks, if not a month or so, and nobody knows if that's going to happen. Then you would see some real pressure on Boeing as well as Airbus, and by extension, the rest of the aviation suppliers. Got it. That's one to follow, especially with those ripple effects that you mentioned there. While we have you, though, Phil, can we ask you what's going on with Ford and possible job cuts? Right. Well, there's headlines that have just crossed that, Bo- uh, that Ford may be considering Cuts, job cuts, white-collar job cuts. Now, we don't know how extensive these may be. We do know that Ford has said for some time, and remember, they last year initiated uh, 3,000 white-collar job cuts as part of their effort to really cut into the costs at Ford. And we know for some time Ford has a cost issue. It has to become a leaner company, a less complex company. So the question becomes, how extensive are these job cuts going to be? Uh, And If it's a case where they're going to be in one area, most likely on the internal combustion engine side of the business, uh, how much does it help them not only short term, but longer term? Don't be surprised if you see more of this, not just with Ford, but we saw this at General Motors last year. These types of buyouts or job cuts, it's all part of them trying to become much leaner. They need to be much leaner. Got it. Thank you very much, Phil. Appreciate that. Guy, you were saying that the uh, spirit halt is a big deal. It kind of ran through some of the ripple effects and it gets worse the longer it goes on. It it is a big deal because I think spirit thought they had this nailed down. They thought they had a four year agreement in place. And it seemed because this seemingly came out of the blue in terms of the strike. But 79 percent of their workers rejected the contract and 85 percent Uh, went forward with a strike. So they're flexing clearly, and maybe they feel they're empowered to do that in this type of labor environment. So this feels like it could actually last longer than, well, I mean, today's market move suggests it will last for a period of time, but last longer than the Boeing move might suggest. So this is something I think you should watch pretty carefully over the next couple of weeks. Well, there's a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. Pharma in full swing. Investors loving on Lilly as shares hit all-time highs. So can the name bring good health to your portfolio? Plus, AI delivery. How Amazon is trying to keep up with the likes of Microsoft and Google. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Eli Lilly topping the tape today, jumping a percent to close at a record high, dating all the way back to 1952. Vive Securities also reiterating the stock as a buy today, saying that it remains the firm's top biopharma pick with ongoing strength in its drug pipeline. So with shares up 25 percent this year alone, is Lilly poised to remain the leader in big pharma? Karen, what do you think? More room to run or is this it for a while? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's really expensive, obviously, as it should be. The market for this is enormous. I uh, was long Novo Nordisk and long Eli Lilly on this Ozempic, Wagovi, Terzepatide, Manjaro. Um, And it's an enormous opportunity for sure. How much is priced in? I'm not really sure. There are other competitors coming. And so um, it's just too rich for me, Eli Lilly, right here. Laura, what do you make in general of biotech sector right now and how Lilly possibly fits in? So look, I think healthcare broadly and biotech and pharma specifically are some of the more interesting places in the market right now, especially as the rally is starting to feel a little bit frothy. It might be time to add a little bit more defense. Um, you've got really, really nice valuations, you know, not necessarily for every individual stock, but at the broader biotech, pharma and healthcare sector level. It's really the only attractively valued place in defense right now. So I don't think investors get that too discriminating at the stock level. Um, you've also got a nice upward earnings revision story sector. And uh, one of the things, um, you know, that we've noticed um, recently, just in looking at company commentary at our conference in particular, there's not a lot of macro going on Mm -hmm. in this sector. Um, I went to our healthcare conference recently, and and my boss got a little annoyed with me because I kept talking about how bored I was. Um, (laughs) But I was like, look, I'm not hearing anything macro here, except that labor is getting better for these companies. And so I just think there's a lot of nice stuff happening at this sector. It's kind of macro agnostic right now. Um, and, you know, I think people will play the winners. Danny, need a little macro agnosticity? I don't even know how to, what the right word <laughs> Paul is. Paul McCauley was agnostic. I was going to say, this is like, this is like the Sesame Street like... word of the day. No, um, it's interesting. You know, I, I take a look at the XLV, you know, the ETF, the tracks sector, because you have some of the big pharma, you have some of them playing some of these mega trends, but then you also have a UNH, which is the largest holding, and that has, to, has not acted particularly well. There's a whole host of things, and I know that there's some who don't like owning these names into, let's say, a presidential election year, yeah. that sort of thing. But from a valuation standpoint, it makes sense. It's funny, you know, you said defense. It seems like every strategist that, that, that doesn't really want to go out on a limb too far on some of the tech stuff, the stuff that's been driving the market, you hear energy, right? And then you'll hear value as it comes to um, healthcare. I'm probably more in the healthcare camp than I would be at energy right now, just because if we do have a slowing economy, I don't think you want to be in energy at the moment. Well, coming up, Amazon opens the AI floodgates, the tech giant investing big bucks into a program that helps customers get a piece of that craze. More on that is next. And the pizza puzzle demand for the party staple is usually recession proof, but no one seems to have told the stocks this time around. So is it time to change up the recipe? Fast Money is back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks trying to rebound after a three-day losing streak. The Dow finishing basically flat. The S&P up three-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq jumping one percent as investors load up on tech stocks. And speaking of tech, Apple setting a fresh all-time high close, ending the day at $187 a share. Shares up 44 percent this year. And home builders trading near records as well. DR Horton and Lennar hitting all-time highs earlier this week. But Pulte Group notching another record today. And Amazon jumping more than 4% today after revealing its latest AI bet. Its cloud unit, AWS, will invest $100 million into a program that will help companies build and create custom generative AI products. CNBC's Deirdre Bosa spoke with AWS CEO David Slipsky about the initiative. She tried to say, Deirdre, 
Yeah, so Courtney, some investors, they've wondered over the last six to eight months, where is Amazon in this generative AI zeitgeist? Yes, it has been working on AI and deploying it across its different businesses for years. But until today, there wasn't that kind of splashy investment or product that we've seen from the likes of Microsoft and Google. So putting that $100 million behind a whole generative AI program is essentially telling investors that Amazon is in this AI arms race and it is just getting started. That's partly why the stock popped today. As you mentioned, I spoke to AWS CEO Adam Stilipsky yesterday in San Francisco, and he said that they're going to be doing it differently than rivals Microsoft and Google. Have a listen. Such an important right. concept here, because otherwise you ask yourself the question, well, where are the different runners three steps into a 10K race? Does it really matter? The point is you're three steps in and it's a 10K race. Right. And what, what people need today is choice and to be able to experiment and to be able to figure out you know, what different types of models, what different types of use cases are most powerful. And that's why customers are so excited to work with AWS for generative AI. So Amazon is focusing not on the consumer necessarily, but at least with this program on the back end, and that is helping cloud customers build their own products and applications. So it's a big announcement. Is it as splashy as an open AI or a kind of search function? Maybe not. But, you know, a lot of Wall Street is starting to come around to the idea that Amazon is going to be a major player in this and potentially a winner. You also have all of the data that it holds, which is key to this shift. Courtney. Absolutely. With all the different verticals, who knows what Amazon could do. Dee, thanks so much for bringing that to us. Lori, what are your thoughts generally on AI, how it plays out as an investment in a market like this? So, you know, Thank one you. idea I've been pushing back against is the idea that this whole tech rally this year has been all AI driven, and I just don't see it. I think we've had five or six different catalysts that have pushed people into a certain number of these, you know, kind of big mega cap tech stocks. AI is one of them, but if you look at transcript data, AI really only exploded into the conversation in May. Um, it was sort of trickling in prior to that. So I think it's, you know, the concern about AI contributing to froth in the market, I feel like is a little overhyped. That's the, the kind of, you know, overhype I see there. But I also think that we're sitting here with markets, you know, having, I personally think we priced in the recession last year. I think markets have been baking in a recovery in 2024 next year. But I think it's a sluggish recovery. Consensus is expecting about a 0.8% GDP growth next year. Typically, growth stocks, secular growth stories do well in a sluggish economic backdrop. And we don't have a lot of interesting growth stories out there right now. We've got reshoring and AI, and that's about it. Um, so I'm sympathetic you know, I, I, to the concerns that this is contributing to frothiness and concentration. But at the same time, I understand how we get there. And it feels like a very early conversation. Karen, you know, Dee said maybe this is an early conversation with Amazon and AI. And, and Adam said, look, we're three steps into a 10K race. But... Mm -hmm. Do you want to count Amazon out here? Is this something you want to dip into now early on in the race? I'm long Amazon. I, I think that what's interesting about Amazon, obviously, a cloud, they're the biggest cloud right. company that there is. And, um, and AI will use a ton of cloud computing. Amazon, though, unlike, say, AI, you know, the, I don't even know what, what, what I don't even know exactly what they do that, Dot AI. Right. Um, but I think for Amazon, they don't do this to pump their stock. There's a lot of players now who want to, you know, want the magic pixie dust mm -hmm. of AI to light, you know, to, to fall on them and help their share price. Amazon has never focused on share price. They don't care. What I think they do care about is cloud is not growing as quickly as it used to. And they want to be very much in the race. They're the leader right now in cloud. They don't want to lose that. And so I think they want to tell the world we're going to have AI capabilities as well because they want to deliver the best product. For them, I don't think this is about 
their interest in, you know, gunning the stock in the short term. And having AI pop up on their transcript searches too, mm -hmm. right, Lori? Well, meanwhile, AI is the main topic. At NVIDIA shareholder meeting today, the CEO saying that, quote, AI should be regulated. We believe that future regulation will instill confidence in the marketplace to adopt AI practices and services, which in turn will help expand and grow the industry. Shares of NVIDIA flat today, but posting a monster rally this year. Dan, what you, what's your take generally on AI, I guess, and NVIDIA's idea that it should be regulated here? Yeah, I think it's a lot easier for NVIDIA to say it should be regulated. They're not the ones <laughs> build, the, building the models. They're selling the picks and the shovels, and, the, and that makes a lot of sense. And they're selling a product that ultimately they would hope for it to be commoditized at some point in the not-too-distant future. That means that their advanced chips are being used all over the place rather than just some of these early companies that are trying to harness this technology. And I'll just say the one thing about Amazon, and I think you have it right, Karen. I mean, they they need to defend their moat. They have um, slowing growth as it relates to AWS. They're losing market share. They have 33% of the of the market share as it relates to um, you know the, the 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 cloud. And so they need to offer these sorts of technologies. Otherwise, they won't have new customers come, and they won't have customers, existing customers, um, scale up. And and the Nvidia thing, you know, your point, Laurie, is a good one. That uh, maybe it's just May. Some of the data that you're looking at. Um, but without NVIDIA, you don't have the Microsoft and the Google and the Amazon rallying the way they do because without the, the verification of that order growth that they saw in the current quarter, there's no reason to rush in and push the valuations of Microsoft and Google and Amazon based on this right now, in my opinion, Guy. Well, yeah, and throw up an AMD. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth talking about again. To your point, sort of a counter. AMD reported early May, stock went down 10% in a straight line post-earnings. It got back on its horse and rallied then 55% on the back of a headline that they were in partnership, some sort of a collaboration with Microsoft to compete with NVIDIA on their chip front. And the stock went from 80 to 135. I mean, nothing changed for AMD. As a matter of fact, again, the quarter wasn't particularly good. All that changed was those couple of words and the market took off. So there's certainly some froth around that. And again, AMD is a great company, but it did not deserve to rally 50% over the course of a month and a half. Well, coming up, energy taking a hit this week, and options traders are pumping in how they're playing one energy stock that's up next. And throughout June, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month. Here's the CMO of Poshmark. For me, as an LGBTQIA who recently went through a surrogacy process, um, I'm very thankful that me and my partner now have two twins. Um, I was shocked at the number of people who felt uncomfortable asking me questions about the process. And for me, I welcome the opportunity to share with them about the struggles, um, the costs, uh, the emotional journey that we went through as partners and how we got there. Being able to answer those questions really felt like I was creating a bridge for people to feel comfortable to understand more about the struggles that we go through. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another rough session for energy. The sector, one of the worst in the S&P today and down nearly 3% this week. And options traders are betting things could get much worse for one big name in the group. Mike Coe has the action. Hi, Mike. Hi there. I was taking a look at Petrobras, ticker PBR. This thing traded seven times its average daily put volume. Most of that the result of a single large trade. Somebody bought 80,000 of the July 14-13 put spreads, spent 22 cents a contract for those. The buyer of those put spreads obviously bets that the recent rally that the shares have seen may reverse and we could go back to those earlier lows that we saw at the beginning of this year. 
All right, Mike, thank you very much. Guy, what do you make of Makes this trade? Makes sense. If you look, and I don't know if you can throw a chart up, but it, back in March, Petrobras traded up to 15 and failed, and we're basically right there now. So this is a logical level where you should be taking some money off the table. So Mike is probably spot on. By the way, Dan, that show, when is that show on? Oh, hey. Friday? Mm-hmm. Friday at 530. Which Courtney will be hosting tomorrow, by sure the way. Sure will. Don't want to miss it. It's no, going to be a great one. Never do. In fact, you want to tune in. That full episode is at 530 tomorrow, Friday. Coming up, our guy at Ami, he knows his way around a good pizza pie. But the beloved staple from Naples is not delivering returns this year. What's going on? We'll be joined by the CEO of Slice. That's next for an inside look at the problems. Plus, more cheesy puns ahead. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Vast Money. Big problems in the pizzaverse. Domino's and Papa John's sitting out what's been a big year for restaurant stocks. CNBC's Kate Rogers reporting that driver shortages and customers returning to sit-down restaurants is weighing on the delivery business. But could these underperformers be primed for a pop? Or is there much more pizza pain ahead? For more on that, let's bring in Slice Pizza founder and CEO, Alir Sella. Alir, thank you so much for joining us. You know, we often think about pizza as a possible recession indicator with people buying more pizza when things maybe get tough and it just becomes a more affordable option. It doesn't seem like we're seeing that from the big players, but what are you seeing in your business? Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. I think uh, pizza has been synonymous with some of the big chains, but what we're seeing is actually a renaissance on the independent side. So Slice Powers, 20,000 independent family-run businesses, pizza shops, you know, the staple around the corner uh, with all of the tech and services that uh, benefit the big chains. And what we're seeing is 4,800 new independent pizza shops opened up last year, an all-time record. Compare that to about 222 locations for the big chains. And so really what we're seeing is a shift from big chain to independence as the technology and convenience factor is kind of evening out uh, through services like Slice and other players in the space. um, I was having a conversation with a mutual friend of ours, Jeff Richards from GGV, who's also an investor in your fine company, Slice, yesterday. And he was telling me, and he was saying of all the companies that he looks across, he sits on lots of boards. He was talking about some of the trends in small, medium, and business. He said they're not seeing a slowdown in CapEx and and just in business in general. Give us a sense, because you just gave us the scale of which, you know, you're helping lots of SMBs across the country, different geographies. Um, What's it like out there? Do you have, like, your finger on the pulse? Because there's an obsession right now with whether we're going to be in a recession or not at some point this year. I'm just curious what you guys are seeing. Definitely have the finger on the pulse. Look, I spoke with the owner of Billy's Pizza in Brooklyn, New York, Nino's Pizza in New Jersey. Johnny from Johnny's Pizza in North Carolina. And the common theme is that they're seeing same-store sales growth year on year. Uh, Certainly, there's uh, the consumer trend in terms of their um, uh, appetite for pizza uh, has remained pretty consistent. I think there's probably a shift happening from, again, some of the larger chains as their prices are creeping up, but the quality doesn't match. Uh, So certainly, we're seeing strength. And again, part of that is also because pizza has always been a bit of a economic uh, value product and play. You know, for a family, you can feed a, uh, an entire family for, with a large pizza for, you know, the average is about $16. So certainly not seeing any softness in the category. And we continue to see uh, players, small businesses expand. There's businesses opening up their second, third location, and as well as moving their entire business online. Obviously, that's a big part of the the consumer shift. 
Alira, if the average price of pizza is $16, is that where it is now before inflation? Or how has inflation impacted the cost of the ingredients that go into pizza, potential delivery fees or other other sort of service fees that are related to, to getting you that pizza? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely see uh, an uptick in menu price prices going up uh, ever so slightly for the independents. Uh, we have actually this great sliceoftheunion.com uh, platform where all of the insights are actually made transparent for anyone to go in and consume. So we're seeing menu prices inch up, definitely seeing delivery fees kind of inch up as well as labor shortages, you know, continue to plague not only big chains, but, but the family run businesses. However, I think the difference here is that the consumer is willing to pay for quality. And that's what you get with a family run small business. And I don't know if the quality matches the price with some of the big chains. That's my hypothesis. I think that Domino's and Papa John's have always been a value play. And the question is, does that still hold true today as they face pressures, you know, both from food prices and labor shortages? Alir Salah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I think quality ingredients is one. Pizza Friday tradition for my family is another. Dan, how do you trade it? Yeah, I, I think that the, the comparison of, of the way Domino's has traded, it hasn't traded particularly well. And we've seen the burrito companies do well, the burger companies do well, that sort of thing. You see Shake Shack is, is trading at a 52-week high, that sort of thing. So I think businesses like his that are enabling small businesses to better compete, I think that's a really interesting trend. Well, coming up next, it's already time for your final trades. It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Laura, you get to go first. I'd buy health care. It's cheap, it's boring, um, and it's got some good earnings revision trends. And not a lot of macro situation going on there, but hey, maybe it works. Karen. Yeah, you know, uh, this is a hard one. So I had to sell some Apple. Just valuation is just getting too high. And I hate to do it, but I had to sell some. And so for my own personal stock, I gave it to charity. So I figure, all right, trying to do the right thing, hopefully. You always at do a the right price. thing. Apple at 187. Dan? She never sold. She did the right thing. <laughs> and when she did it, she did it the right way. She's a genius. Uh, you know, it's funny. Your, your healthcare thing is, is a good one. We spent a lot of time. We've been talking about these weight loss drops. We've been talking about Lilly and the valuation. I mean, Pfizer, we, we've covered that story a little bit. They're working on an oral. This one just seems really cheap, and it seems like it's caught in that COVID hangover. But this could probably start to work because if you do start to get revisions, this thing, people will pile into it. Guy. Courtney, always great having you. Lori, wonderful having you. PSA, what do they call those things? Public service PSA. announcements? PSA, yeah. There you go. If you're getting pizza with like pineapple or any other like oranges, you're doing it wrong. Do not call me. Don't at me on Twitter. It's just not allowed. But Amgen at these levels is, Courtney. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.